when it comes to autism per se, I think it's important to really think about whether one should have the goal of treating autism or whether it's something else that we need to do. Of course, we should and we need to accept that there's a huge variability and diversity in the population in general. And I think before saying that this is problematic, we should think about other ways of handling it. And one thing is acceptance. On the other hand, of course, there are some aspects of autism that can be important to try to change. For example, self-harm or some other behavior that is problematic. Also, some basic level of communication is very important for everyone to have. But I think it's important to take a step back and think about what is it that we should define as treatment targets and who should define those. It's a bit tricky, but it's important that we think about that. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Lea, and today I talk to Terje Falkutte, professor in psychology at Uppsala University and Pro Futura Ciencia Fellow here at SCAS. He was in residence at SCAS in the academic year of 2018-2019. This is the third episode on the topic the brain, and Terje Falkutte will tell us more about his research on autism or autism spectrum disorders, which is the more correct terminology. We will hear more about what infants can teach us about the early signs of autism and why it is so important to be able to diagnose early on in life. And is it correct to describe autism as a superpower? We also go into that later on in the episode. Very welcome to Scus Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm working at Uppsala University. I'm also affiliated with the Karolinska Institutet. And I'm heading the DIVE group. So that's Development and Neurodiversity Lab. It stands for that. I'm originally from Norway, but I'm, I guess, gradually getting more and more Swedish. And I got very attached to, to Sweden after after graduating from a clinical degree, both uh, privately and professionally, I guess you can say. And now I'm uh, I'm stuck. So today we talk about your exciting research. And just very briefly, if you could summarize, what is it about? What do you do? It's hard to summarize very briefly, but it's, of course, about autism spectrum disorders or autism for short. And it's about the early development of this condition. So uh, we try to figure out what happens before one can officially, so to say, diagnose autism with today's methods. We try to understand the developmental processes that occur before the real symptoms occur. And by this, we hope to, to understand more about what autism is really about in terms of brain, in terms of behavior, and in terms of development. I'm also doing some uh, studies on twins in parallel, where we try to investigate the contribution of genetic factors versus environmental factors to many of the same early behaviors and brain measures as we study when we focus on autism. So I have different foci, you could say, but this is some of it. I also studied a lot of eye tracking, so eye movements. I've used eye tracking to try to understand what people, and, and particularly infants and children, including children with autism, tend to look at when they observe the world. So that was actually what my PhD was about back in the days. Yeah, and going back to the days, how come you got interested in your current research topic? I went to Sweden to become a clinical psychologist. And when finishing up that degree, I came into Klaus von Hofstens lab to do a study, a master's thesis on eye movements. And it was very exciting times. We found a paradigm that was really, it gave us a lot of insight into infants' eye movements and how they use their eyes to understand the social environment. So this was so exciting. So I then decided actually to halt the plans I had to go back to Norway and become a clinical psychologist and instead start a PhD here in Sweden. 
And in parallel to my PhD studies, I practiced as a, as a clinical psychologist in Sweden. It's called PTP psychologist. It's some kind of practical thing in order to, to get some experience on the clinical side. And I did that at the habilitation service in Uppsala. And that was really interesting. It was working with young children with autism, trying to find out if they had autism or not, so diagnosing, but also early intervention. So this was when I got into contact with autism for the first time. And of course, then linking these two sides together, focusing on eye tracking and eye movements and young children with autism, it was natural then to get interested in the very early development of autism. And that was the reason why we started this study of younger siblings of children with autism that we follow already from infancy and up towards toddlerhood and early childhood. So this project I started directly after finishing my PhD. Very interesting, very good that you could put the two things together there, really. Also, another more background question before we go into more details. What is autism? I think, I mean, most of our listeners have heard it before, maybe know somebody. But nowadays, there's also the term autism spectrum disorder, as I said in the beginning. And what does all of this describe, really? If you look at the diagnostic manual, you will see that autism is defined by two sets of symptoms. It is one set that is called challenges with, with social communication. So when thinking about a young child, that could be problems with joint attention, it could be eye contact or failing to establish uh, relationships with other people or maintain relationships with, with other young children, for example. That's part of this social communication domain of the diagnosis. But then in addition, there is also another part which is called repetitive and restricted patterns in behavior and interests. And that can be, for example, that you're quite fond of uh, strict routines and you follow them uh, more or less all the time. You do a certain thing. So that's, of course, then the flip side of being very uh, flexible in all situations. So a little bit routine-like personality and also quite intense interests in certain things. That's also an aspect of this, uh, this domain. And also some people with autism, including children, can be a bit hypersensitive or hyposensitive to certain sensory stimuli. So as you can hear, it's a, it's a rather broad set of characteristics and behaviors that define autism. And there are so many theories of autism that you can't even count them. So I guess it's easiest now to, to stick to the formal definition. Then you asked about this, uh, this idea of a spectrum, and that can entail two different things. And I think both are, in a way, valid. One is that within the group of people with autism, you have such a variety of different types of combinations of, of symptoms and of uh, strengths also, because some of the aspects of autism can also be a strength in, in certain situations. That can be seen as one side of the spectrum idea within the group of people with autism. But then in addition, another way of thinking about spectrum, I guess, could be that you see autism not as something very discrete and different from what is going on in the, the rest of the population, but rather that it's the extreme end of a continuum that encompasses the whole population, actually. Yeah, so I guess that's the two, two phases of spectrum. It's quite amazing when you look at the features of neurodivergence, then, I mean, you can find something that fits you as well, right? If you look at the diagnoses for ADHD and... Oh, yes. I mean, uh, one shouldn't look too carefully about the, in those uh, diagnostic manuals. I'm, I'm sure there is something for everyone. Exactly. So let's get into research then. You have a study that's called uh, Small Syskon in Swedish, Younger Siblings. Let's talk a little bit about that. What is that study about? That study is the one I, I referred to earlier, where we study younger children, younger siblings of children with autism. And now we have also included younger siblings of children with ADHD. And also you can be included if you have a parent with any of those two. So we have broadened it a little bit. 
so actually the name younger siblings or project small syscon in swedish is not entirely accurate anymore but it has become a brand anyway what we are trying to do there is that we we want to understand the early development in these conditions primarily autism but we have a little bit broad focus on different types of phenomena linked to autism and ADHD then we recruit the infants when they are very young so these are very young babies coming into the lab with their parents of course and we try to very gently move them along a set of child friendly experiments and and procedures in which we try to then test various ideas about behaviors early signs of of autism and developmental processes that we think are relevant in order to understand yeah the unfolding of events that eventually are expressed as the condition and diagnosis that we know according to the definitions but you know if you have your diagnostic manual and you look at babies you will not be able to diagnose autism it's not possible at those very young ages so it means you have to look at some other types of behaviors and other early signs and of course autism and ADHD it has to do with the brain of course all behavior has to do with the brain so we also look at the brain in different ways using different types of methods including what is called EEG where you measure brain activity and also MRI the infants are uh, sleeping in a in a brain scanner and we measure both structural aspects of the brain development but also functional aspects there it's a long range of different types of methods that we try to use to illuminate these early processes and then we do not only study them at one time and then say goodbye rather we follow them until they are 3 years with a lot of different assessments at different time points so we try to portray a full picture of the development between the well 5 months is the earliest time point today and up to 3 years and this is very important that we get these developmental trajectories rather than just isolated fragments of development because those don't really tell us so much about development you need to get those trajectories and compare them between groups in terms of behavior in terms of brain i should perhaps add one thing and it's that when they reach 3 years they will then meet the project's psychologists and they will then evaluate who in this group of children at elevated likelihood for autism and ADHD actually got a diagnosis themselves because most of them don't get a diagnosis of course it's maybe some 10 to 20% in that group who gets a diagnosis most of them are developing just fine as you would typically expect from infants but you have this subgroup that do not and and of course then when we know who those were we can look back at the early data from the different methods and compare and see look at that if you are a sibling of somebody with autism or ADHD it doesn't mean that you will get it yourself but still it's an elevated likelihood because the prevalence in the general population is around 1% for autism for example to include the siblings of children or in families who have already an established diagnosis that's a way for you to select who to include in the study yes due to uh, this elevated likelihood it means that we can study maybe 100 or 200 children and get some reasonable answers if we just picked randomly in the population we would have to study a lot of of infants to get to the same conclusions and you mentioned eye tracking earlier you also do that of course in your in the lab in the baby lab that's right so we are actually focusing a lot on eye tracking because that's in a way my favorite method we started with more traditional eye tracking meaning that you show various stimuli on a screen and you measure what the infant looks at in those stimuli for example do they attend to faces do they react quickly when something uh, suddenly appears so attentional measures that you can capture on the screen but then we also wanted to measure how infants use their gaze in a real life situation because obviously there could be important differences between how infants look at a computer screen with pre-recorded stimuli and how they attend to things in in real life 
So therefore, and this was a very creative project and a fun project, we created a little, I guess you could call it a puppet show, where we try to entertain the infant, of course. We always need to be very playful and entertaining. But at the same time, it's also a real psychological experiment where we assess the infant's tendency to follow gaze. So when an adult, the actor in this play, moves his or her gaze to somewhere, does the infant follow that gaze? That's really important for social development and communication and language also, actually. So that's something we assess there. And then it's an eye tracker that records with millisecond precision where exactly does the child look and does he or she follow gaze. We also measure if the child himself or herself initiates joint attention. So these are so important aspects of the study, and it has uh, turned out to be very fruitful also in terms of results and, and publications, this puppet show theater experiment. And then finally, we also use another type of measure that comes from eye tracking, and it's, it's in a way a byproduct of measuring the gaze. It's the pupil, the pupil size. So when you measure where somebody looks, you use the pupil in order to see the direction of the gaze. But of course, the pupil in itself is also interesting. So when the pupil constrict, it's a measure of how sensitive you are to light. So when the light turns on, you, your pupils constrict, of course. And this we have measured in children who later got autism. And we found that their pupils constricted a little bit more than in the other children already at 10 months, so long before you could formally diagnose them. But in this project, we followed them up and we saw this interesting uh, association. So that's one example of of pupil measures and and how they can be used. And this also comes from eye tracking. So eye tracking, is it like a device that you put on the infant's head or what does it look like? I'm imagining something from from a sci-fi movie here. (laughs) Actually for the infant, It's like watching TV or just watching a a puppet show in in real life. There's nothing attached to the infant. It's just a piece of equipment standing in front of the child, and it can measure the gaze remotely through infrared light. So it's, of course, not harmful, not dangerous at all. It has been used a lot in research with infants over the years. It's such an important method, in part because it's so infant-friendly and non-intrusive. You know, infants, they learn to use their gaze to explore the world before they can move in other ways. So this is such an important aspect of development where they interact with the world in a way through their gaze behavior and select certain pieces of information, but at the same time, ignore other things because you cannot attend to everything at the same time. So each time you move your gaze, it's in a way a selection of what you want to attend to in the world that's interesting when my kids were babies my mom used to say look they are scanning like scanning the environment for something interesting or for something to to take in so then she was right she was definitely right and now we are also doing some interesting twin analysis based on this type of measure and it turns out that where you look on a moment-to-moment basis is uh, to a relatively large extent driven by genetic factors. I think that's a fascinating aspect of this gaze behavior that um, in a way it's uh, genetic factors contribute to this moment-to-moment selection of the environment you choose to attend to. You have mentioned some results with the pupils there. Is there anything else? Exciting that you can share with us from the studies. Another very important result, and this is a little bit linking back to this experiment with a puppet show, it's that actually we found that infants who later got the autism diagnosis, they were able to follow gaze. And they developed their gaze-following skills just as other uh, infants in the study. So it means that when the adult, when the, when the experimenter initiates gaze or initiates joint attention, the infant is able to follow. But in the part where we rather measure the infant's tendency to use his or her gaze to start such a joint attention episode and try to get the adult involved, 
we saw a slightly different pattern where there were clear group differences early on. So our conclusions, uh, or main conclusion from that study was that apparently there is not a big problem with following other people's gaze, but rather something with initiating joint attention. I think that was a very interesting and potentially important finding. Yeah, understand. So small things there that can tell you a lot also in the interaction and in the behavior. Yes. So one of the aim of your project is to be able to detect autism at an earlier age before you can do the official test right now. Why is it so important to do this, to diagnose children with autism early on in their development? That's really important, I think, because by this you can provide more accurate info to the parents early on in order to have uh, realistic expectations, of course, and just knowledge about what autism is and what it entails at different time or ages. It can, of course, also be used more practically in order to adapt certain aspects of the environment. This could, of course, happen in Sweden in collaboration with the preschool think about how one could adapt the environment so that it fits the, the child's needs in the best way possible and promotes development in different ways. Of course, each child with autism or any child is unique, so one has to see what is needed for this child. It's not the same, of course. It's also possible to train certain behaviors related to autism to try to minimize problematic symptoms and improve skills. And in order for that to happen, it can be an advantage to actually have a diagnosis in order to say, look, we actually need support here and resources. And finally, I would say that early diagnosis is also important in order to improve research on early intervention. Because although there are options today, clearly there is more room for improvement in terms of early intervention. And I think that's also very important that we actually do that kind of research. Because that's the thing we can do after diagnosis, right? To sort of adjust things in the child's environment and and train them in different kind of behaviors and situations. That's exactly right. Because there is no other medical treatment, if I've understood it. No, there is no medical treatment for the core symptoms of autism. So of course, then it's quite natural to think about so why? Why do children develop autism? What are the causes? Where does it come from? Do you know anything more about that? That's, of course, a key question and a really difficult question. At one level, we know quite a lot about that. We know that genetic factors are very important. So they explain a lot of the, we call it variance in the population in terms of who gets autism, who do not get autism, and also who get high levels of autistic traits, because autism is not a black or white thing, it's more continuously distributed. So there have been done a lot of twin studies, for example, that can estimate to what extent genetic factors play a role for individual differences, and to what extent environment plays a role for these individual differences. And they all indicate that genetics has a very uh, important role in autism. But that doesn't mean that we understand autism, of course, because it's just a general quantification of the, the impact of the genes. And these are, of course, hundreds or thousands of different genes contributing to this overall measure. But still, I think that's an important piece to communicate that it's very much about the genes, because as you know, there have been ideas about the environment and the family environment triggering autism. And now we know that that's, that's not the case. If there is an environment, it's more about the type of environment that is not shared in families, but affecting each individual differently. But the main story is about genetics. And of course, when we think about the, the genetic factors, they are of different kinds. And many of them, we don't know exactly which they are and how they contribute. But it seems that many of them have to do, and this is no surprise, with brain development and how the brain is connected and communicates within itself. So it's a diversity also of genetic uh, variation there. It's not only one autism gene, so to say, but it's many different ones that can be popping up in different combinations there. That's correct. It's only 
in around 20% of people with autism, it is possible to find a clear or likely genetic cause that is linked to, for example, one mutation that one already knows that this one has to has a certain effect. And it's likely that it contributes to this person's autism. In the rest, it seems to be this much more polygenic and diverse etiological background, which is also harder to get a grip on because presumably it's a lot of small effects coming from a range of different genes that together contribute to this constellation of behaviors. This is always fascinating because I remember when the human genome was completely mapped and there was this hope that now we can understand all diseases and all the genetics behind all the different conditions that you can have. But then quite soon it, people found out that maybe it's not so easy. You have all these diseases that have a lot of genetic factors and a combination of genetics and environments. So. Exactly. And also the, the flip side of it, if you can say so, is that many genes contribute to so many different things. It's a difficult task to, to really understand this, but at least the twin studies can help us understand the sort of overall contribution to individual differences from genetic versus environmental factors. So that's a good start, I think. And that's also why we think it's so important, why it can be uh, insightful to have these infant twin studies going in parallel to the sibling study. So that we can see if the early behaviors that predict autism are heritable, for example. That would be expected if they are strongly linked to autism. Together, the two types of designs, that's a powerful combination, I think. So the, the twins then, tell me more about them. What kind of twins are they? It's nothing very fancy in terms of uh, special twins. It's uh, monozygotic and dizygotic twins. So. Uh, monozygotic or identical twins, they share in principle 100% of their DNA, while the dizygotic or fraternal twins, they are just like other biological siblings that they share on average 50%. It means that similarity in terms of the genetic factors is much higher in the monozygotic twins. So if you then measure something you are interested in, in the monozygotic twins, and you find that they are much more similar within the pair than the dizygotic pairs are, and that this is systematic across the whole sample you are studying, this is an indication then that these genetic factors that they, the monozygotic ones share contribute to being similar. And if you measure something like autistic traits or autism-like behaviors you have, you will see that monozygotic twins are much more similar. So if one monozygotic twin have a very high score, it's very likely that the other one also has it. While in dizygotic twins, you don't have that pattern. Of course, they are still correlated because they share a lot of genes, but it's not at the same extent. So this is the basic design of a twin study that tells you something about genetic factors. But the interesting thing is that the twin design can also tell you about environmental factors. Because if the fraternal or the dizygotic twins are just as similar as the monozygotic twins, it suggests that, okay, it's something that makes them similar. But it appears that it hasn't to do with the genetics because the monozygotics are just as similar as the dizygotic or vice versa. So then if you see that pattern, that both groups are equally similar, then the conclusion is that it's something in the environment that makes them similar, and that's called shared environment. And that's what you don't find in autism. You already talked a little bit about this, but then once you know more, you diagnose early, you know more about maybe later on, you will know more about the causes of autism. What can you do with this knowledge? How can you apply it? If you understand more specifically about the, the molecular mechanisms related to a particular person's autism. For example, if there is a mutation in a certain gene, then that uh, may be of importance also already now if there is clinical knowledge about what that entails in terms of expected comorbidity, for example. Because as I just said, many genes are not only involved in one phenotype. So if you have a an alteration in a certain gene, it will also affect other things. 
And this is actually an interesting general point that the one way to look at autism is that it often comes with comorbidity. And many times it's the comorbidity that can be troublesome. So maybe that's what you should focus on in terms of treatment. One answer to this question is we can try to at least understand the comorbidity better and thereby increase the options for various types of intervention. When it comes to autism per se, I think it's important to really think about whether one should have the goal of treating autism or whether it's something else that we need to do. Of course, we should and we need to accept that there's a huge variability and diversity in the population in general. And I think before saying that this is problematic, we should think about other ways of handling it. And one thing is acceptance. On the other hand, of course, there are some aspects of autism that can be important to try to change. For example, self-harm or some other behavior that is problematic. Also, some basic level of communication is very important for everyone to have. But I think it's important to take a step back and think about what is it that we should define as treatment targets and who should define those. It's a bit tricky, but it's important that we think about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's also a lot you can do with adjusting the environment and adjusting small things to make life easier. Absolutely. And a lot of people and children with autism have rather big needs in terms of uh, adapting various things and, and also the training of many different behaviors in order to be able to communicate their needs, etc. At the same time, it's a bit hard to talk about autism as one thing and what people with autism need because uh, it's so diverse. We need to see the, the individual when discussing this. What I quite appreciate is that there has been so much more awareness during the past years to really see the diversity and not just write people off as strange. Absolutely, and that has been a very important development. So you have a quite challenging research field. You're studying a complex condition. What are the biggest challenges and also the biggest possibilities in your research? I think many of the challenges, now I'm thinking a little bit about my own research also, is that we need to be so patient when it comes to understanding autism. And there is a strong drive to, to get to practical applications very quickly. But unfortunately, human development is extremely complex and understanding autism is related to understanding human development. So there is no shortcut to that, I think. So a, a general challenge is to get the time and stability in research to really yeah, get into the details and explore these ideas in these longitudinal designs, because I believe that we need to follow the, the infants and children over time in order to map these developmental trajectories that I talked about. And that takes time. At least I haven't come up with a, cl a clever idea to solve that in a very short time. And this is a general challenge. We have been fortunate to get support from SCAS and from the Expansions Jubileums Fund and others to, to actually have this kind of longitudinal project going on. And I think that's super good and so important for us here in Sweden. But it's also challenging from a practical point of view to have these projects because you need personnel that are stable over time. Of course, they don't want to stay as research assistants forever, and you need to change the personnel from time to time. So take one example, this puppet show I talked about. It has been going on since uh, 2011 or something like that, so 10 years. And I have been then forced to change actors, I guess, five or six times over the years. And to get them trained and do this in the same way is really challenging. I realize I'm, not, I'm not now getting into the details of my project, but, but still, this is a really challenging part to do this stable data collection over a long time. Another general aspect that is challenging is to find a balance between getting excited about new results and realizing that a new result is just one new result that we need to perhaps not take so seriously before it has been replicated a couple of times. 
And this is challenging in general in the field, I think. I think, unfortunately, there are too many results that are just one result, but still they are directly incorporated into the the story of how things are. And I, I think that's very problematic. But what we see sometimes when we actually do large studies in infants is that maybe the results are not so, so let's say, striking, that the relations are perhaps a bit weaker. But still, I prefer that to have large sample sizes and feel that I really can, can say something about these results rather than having you know, quick results with fancy conclusions. And when it comes to possibilities, I think the developments in, in machine learning-based prediction will probably enable people to predict later outcomes and behaviors quite accurately based on early infant data in the not-too-distant future. So more concretely, I guess we can probably get a prediction of who is very likely to get a diagnosis of autism based on the various types of behavioral and brain data we collect in infants based on machine learning. The problem with that is that you don't necessarily understand so much about what this means, because that's the downside of machine learning, that it's a little bit a black box. At least that's, that's my understanding. It, it, it's good at predicting, but it doesn't necessarily help us understand what, what happened. And I can also add that I think Sweden is a, is a good place to be when it comes to this type of long-term stable research. I think there are pretty good opportunities to get funding, as I mentioned earlier. That's very good to hear. You mentioned machine learning in the future, but looking ahead, what do you think will happen in the field of autism spectrum disorders and the research around that? You know what happened when the last edition of the diagnostic manual was published was that they actually moved back from having subcategories of autism to having just one category, a category, a very broad one, autism spectrum disorder. But I guess that was a temporary step in that direction. And the hope, I guess, is that we will understand more about the subtypes and um, maybe the types that shouldn't be called autism, but rather something else and uh, link with different types of comorbidity that can occur at the same time. So I think we will see some kind of branching of the autism concept and diagnosis into subparts again, with hopefully then more clear understanding of what is going on in those. But I assume that a rather large part of autism will remain with, with less elaborate explanation, unfortunately, because as I said, I, I cannot see a shortcut to a full and complete answer to such a complex phenomenon. Autism is also sometimes described as a superpower. You were mentioning this a little bit in the beginning, that you can have an intense interest in one subject and then people also get very good at that, very knowledgeable. And sometimes autism is also described as a condition that makes life very difficult. So what are your thoughts, especially on this superpower part? Can we have that picture? Is that correct? I think it's not correct for most uh, people with the condition, at least. Of course, people have to choose themselves how they sort of describe their personality and diagnosis or condition. But I think that there are aspects of the symptoms or the behaviors that define autism or the behaviors linked to autism that can be seen perhaps as a superpower in some situations. And that's, uh, of course, very real and meaning. For example, that you are much better, or at least better than, than other people in, in certain behaviors or, or skills. Actually, already in, at three years in our study, we see that children who have autism, they are faster in detecting details in a picture, in a complex picture. So they search for X's, the letter X in various complex scenes, and they find them quicker. It's a skill that they master. I don't know if you should automatically call that a superpower, though, but it's still fascinating that we see it so early. So I think it can be problematic to talk about such a complex phenomenon where you have such a large variability between people and talk about it as a superpower, actually. Yeah, I mean, we have also seen quite some depictions of autistic characters in popular cultures, in films or series. 
I remember the film uh, Rain Man featuring an autistic person with quite a lot of challenges in his everyday life. And then we have characters like Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory, you know, representative for Asperger. So we see a lot of this now in popular media and that also raises awareness. But what about these characters that are sometimes a little bit stereotypical also in, in popular media? What, what are your thoughts on that, of this depiction of autism or people with autism? I think it's exactly what you say. It's, it's a bit stereotypic. I mean, of course, they need to select certain behaviors that they emphasize in order to make an interesting character. I agree with you, basically, that it's good in a way that people get to know autism through popular media. But at the same time, it's a risk that it portrays a too stereotypic and simplistic picture. And also maybe that certain aspects are emphasized a little bit too much. At least it's safe to say that you don't get the diversity really represented when you just look at one person and, and think that that's autism. We also have real people, of course, famous and well-known persons with autism are portrayed as super smart, being special in some way. Yes. It's not strange that there are a lot of, of famous people with autism. Because autism, it's a continuous trait, at least I often think of it like that, that it's the extreme end of something that has to do with not everyone, but I mean, basically, it's a phenomenon that extends this clinical group and goes well into the general population. It's not so interesting in a way to talk about who has autism or not, because it's such a, we can all recognize part of it, these traits in different people or in ourselves. It's not strange at all that, of course, you see these traits all around in different ways and in different constellations. So for me, it's not such a big question, does that person have autism or not? But it's more like I see it in this more continuous way as a trait that can be more or less expressed. When you were at Gas, when you were in residence here, you wrote a paper together with Sophia Lodien, a scholar in French medieval literature about autism in medieval literature, actually. Sophia told me about this in a previous podcast episode. Can you tell a little bit from your side? How did you get into this subject and how did you decide to do this paper together? You know, when you are at SCAS, you get a lot of opportunity to discuss with other people from different areas. And we realized that it was this potential link between the medieval character Perceval and autism. It was a researcher who had claimed that he may have had autism. So we decided to look into that in a little bit more detail. It was such a fun project. I guess what it made me realize was on the one hand, that it's fascinating, of course, to think about the, I guess, the likely scenario that autism may have been around for a long time and people may have had autism and people may have been interested in autism and related to those behaviors and they may have written about it in, in literature. But concretely thinking about the question, does Perceval have autism? It also made me realize that it's extremely hard to really get at that question because the information is so sparse. You know, you just have these fragments or episodes described in the text that, yeah, they are relevant, but still it's just a few lines here and there. So it's such a matter of interpretation. The tale has changed so much over the years. So there are so many layers that you have to penetrate in order to get at that. So so. I think it's an impossible question, really, but still it's fascinating nevertheless. And it's a nice example of collaboration at the SCAS between two different disciplines. Absolutely. So we can talk a little bit more about the research environment at SCAS. How was it to be here during your stay in 2018-19? You're more in the natural medical sciences, and how did was your experience to be in this kind of environment with scholars from quite different areas. I mean, it was, a, it was a broad range of different backgrounds represented. It was other people from the natural sciences, 
I guess officially I'm actually from the social sciences, but one may wonder. At SCAS there are many people from the humanities, of course, and social sciences more generally. So it was really, what can you say, mind-stretching for me to be there and to try to understand what other people were doing. It was really interesting. It was also very challenging because it's some distance between the different disciplines and what kind of questions and the, how you go about finding out answers, etc. But uh, certainly I learned so much from it. And also the atmosphere at SCAS is so uh, friendly and such beautiful surroundings and very stimulating environments. It was a really good experience being there. Right now I'm actually in, in Oslo as part of the Profitura program arranged by SCAS. But I'm looking forward to coming back and visit SCAS again in the fall. What insights have you gained from this environment that you have been exposed to? Is there anything that you have taken with you now to Oslo or that you are taking back to Uppsala University and Karolinska Institutet and thinking in terms of multidisciplinarity and interacting with other areas of science? I have learned a lot in general, not only from SCAS, but being part of this interdisciplinary research projects for a long time. I hope I've learned something, but we're always, in a way, surprised by all the new situations that you need to handle, such as Corona, for example. Actually, it's not only in relation to SCAS that I feel my work is multidisciplinary. It's, it's also within itself already from the start, because, as I said, you cannot understand autism without understanding more about human development, which is, of course, multi-layered and involves everything from psychology to genetics. And in terms of, of managing that kind of multidisciplinary research project, in general terms, I think it has been very important for me to find senior collaborators that can complement my knowledge and, and skills and try to somehow make them enthusiastic about what I'm doing and try to establish stable collaborations because without that, it wouldn't be possible. Brain imaging, I'm not doing that myself or genetics. So it's about keeping the, the pieces together somehow. I've also learned, I think that it is necessary actually to think big in terms of both the funding and the, the type of research projects because I, I really believe that we need to have this multi-layered longitudinal projects and they are extremely expensive and resource demanding so it's necessary to apply for a lot of money but what i've also experienced is that once you get these unique samples it is a not rather nice card to have on your hand in terms of attracting good people because If you say, I happen to have a data set of 200 infants followed from infancy to three years and a big infant twin study, of course, there are some eyebrow raised. So that has been important. And also, I would say, lastly, to really invest in people that can help taking the project to places I couldn't imagine from the start, because that is happening all the time. I actually have one question that it, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on this. I was thinking about eye movement since you work with eye tracking. So, I mean, now we are in a pandemic and we interact a lot like we are doing right now on the screen, seeing each other in small squares. And we can't really know what the other person is looking at. You can only guess, sort of. So you don't have this eye contact. How does that influence us and especially how would that influence an autistic person? That's a really important and interesting question. And I'm thinking about it a lot, not only about eye movements, but in general, how it influences us to not have a more direct contact. I think a lot of people experience some issues related to all these Zoom and, and Skype meetings. No, but I believe that, you know, having a contingent and dynamic type of interaction where I say something, you hear it immediately and react. That's so fundamental for interaction. And when that dynamic is disrupted, it's not good for the interaction and not good for anything, I should say. And I think 
probably the eye movement part is just one side of that, that you take away all these things that just happen naturally in a, in a human social interaction. And it makes you tired. It uh, can lead to misunderstanding. You, you don't get the timing right, because that's another issue. You often have these slight delays, etc. But I don't know about autism. It's even possible, for all I know, that they could handle it better if they focus more on what is said, for example. I don't know about that. I wonder if somebody has done a study on it. That would be interesting. Thank you very much for being on SCAS Talks and talking to me about your research. And I'm looking forward to hear more about it at some point later on again. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the third and final episode in the theme, The Brain. And I have talked to Terje Falkutte, professor in psychology at Uppsala University and Pro Futura Fellow here at SCAS. In the previous episodes on the same topic, we have heard Karin Jensen about studies on pain and the placebo effect, and Don Larhammer about long-term memory and also pseudoscience. These are episodes number 12 and 13, if you want to listen. Terje, Falkutte and me also mentioned a previous conversation with Sofia Lodian. You can hear more about that in episode number 8, called Translations Create New Literary Traditions and Links Between European Cultures. In the following episodes of SCAS Talks, we are traveling to Africa and to outer space. Previously, we have heard more about global governance, the study of languages, and have also dived into the topic of diversity. The first three episodes of SCAS Talks were about different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic. Quite interesting to listen to now as well. The variety of topics and scholars featured in SCAS Talks is a direct reflection of the multidisciplinary environment at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, and we hope that you find something of interest for you. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us and you won't miss any new content. You can also give us a rating or leave a comment in your favorite podcast app. In the next episode, we will hear more about life in outer space from one of the current scholars, Martin Salian. We hope you want to join us then as well. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Terje Falkutte once again for joining SCAS Talks and of course you for listening. Bye for now.